Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where each week we speak to pharma company owners and industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. On the show this week, I'm joined by my usual co-host, Mr. Adam Walker. How you doing, Hello, James. Adam? Good to see you. Very well, thank you very much. And we are joined by the man himself, Brad Hightower, CEO at Hightower Clinical. If you have been active in LinkedIn ever, you've probably come across this man. But uh, Brad, welcome to the show. Yep, James and Adam, uh, good to see you guys. Appreciate you having me on. Fantastic to have you. Well, look, Brad, uh, I guess our show is all about the individual, uh, how you kind of got into to clinical research. So, but before we get into that, look, just give us a quick intro of, yeah, who you are, Hightower Clinical, what you guys do. Yeah, so very simply put, uh, we provide research infrastructure for physicians so that they can uh, take part in clinical trials in their offices, and they don't need to necessarily go hire a bunch of staff. We provide really the end-to-end infrastructure. We do it at no cost and split study income. So uh, it's kind of a win-win. It's a nice revenue stream for these physicians and their clinics. It's great for their patients. It offers them, uh, you know, clinical research as a care option and access to new treatments before they're available. So that's kind of the, you know, super high level elevator pitch of uh, what Hightower Clinical does. I like it. I like it. It sounds similar, Adam. We've had a few um, guests on the show recently talking about, um, yeah, working with physicians and enable them them to get involved in uh, research. I think most notably have been the um, chaps from Medvector. Um, yes, absolutely. Who I believe, Brad, you, have, have you been in contact with the guys at, at Medvector at all? I have, I have. I think uh, Ted and Scott, and if I missed, if I messed that up, sorry guys. But yes, I've, I've spoken with them, and I think it's uh, not a dissimilar concept. Uh, I think the difference is that there, theirs is more of a sort of a, a tech solution that involves uh, uh, the doctor on the other side not necessarily having to be an investigator in the study as to where we actually go uh, on site and you know, make that an an actual investigative site. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to call what we do sort of low tech DCT, uh, as I'm sure you know, the big uh, (laughs) hype and buzzwords right now is DCT. But uh, to me, it's still uh, kind of boots on the ground, a very sort of, uh, you know, low tech decentralization uh, of, of clinical research. I also I also watched a couple of bits and pieces that you were you have out there, Brad, and you you mentioned integrated site networks. That was a buzzword. I think you were quite quite happy to talk about. So it sounds like it's it 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 is boots on the ground, isn't it? But nevertheless, there will be or there there could be an opportunity for using technology alongside that or te- different technologies. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think there's a. I think there's. The perfect marriage is the, you know, further integration of these DCT tools, along with community partnerships uh, that like the ones that we're creating. So I think oftentimes, you know, it's sort of seen as uh, two sort of enemy combatants, right? You've got uh, the DCT and, you know, they want to cut studies or cut sites out of studies or start to take away some of the, the things that sites do. Uh, and sites are sort of like, you know, new technology, get out of here. This is, this is what we do. But I, I really do think that to overcome some of these hurdles and become more successful, there's going to have to be a, a marriage of these two approaches. And I, I really do truly believe that's the way things are, are heading. 
I think you're absolutely right. And how do you find those trusted partners? How do you find the boots on the ground? How do you qualify them and ensure that they are good enough to reflect the, the, the quality that you're, you're trying to put out there for, for your business? I don't know. Can you tell me how to do that? It's, it's, a, it's a constant challenge. I mean, you know, and and this is also probably where I take a different approach than a lot of traditional uh, research institutes in so much as, you know, for me, uh, clinical research is oftentimes too clinical, right? Uh, it's, it's really based on relationships. It's based on building trust with not just the, the patients who you're you know, let's not kid ourselves. We're trying in some ways to convince them to participate in a trial. Yes, we're educating them. We're giving them every opportunity to be as uh, make an informed decision. But at the end of the day, you want them to participate in your trial. And that requires a certain level of, of trust and relationship building. Uh, and the same goes for the physicians and investigators that you work with. I mean, they have to trust that you're going to represent them well uh, to the sponsors, to the CROs, and to the patients that may be patients of their clinic or patients from, from external referrals. So uh, I tend to sort of lean more into the soft skills when it comes to identifying good uh, clinical research coordinators. There's obviously uh, certain roles that need a baseline level of clinical knowledge. You know, you, you uh, want somebody who can uh, draw blood. Uh, you want, you know, some nurses on your team. Uh, but aside from that, a lot of it comes down, I think, to, to soft skills. How, you know, how pleasant are you? How much can you connect with people? Uh, how self-motivated are you? I mean, I think these are skills that are in some ways undervalued in this field because, you know, uh, I've seen some of the greatest nurses that, you know, I know, and they're just not good research coordinators. It's a different skill set, I think. Uh, and I've seen people with very little to no clinical clinical knowledge be great research coordinators. They can learn and pick up uh, some of the clinical skills that come along with that. So in some ways, that may be a slightly different uh, approach than, than others take. But so far, it's, I think it's served me uh, very well in sort of growing out my team. You've explained that really well, James. Sorry. I think that's a, a good model to have, Brad. And I think it's it's not just in research at site level. It's that's life and, and and business in general, isn't it? We all like to work with those that we like, that we trust. You know, sometimes you want you know some different characters in your team. Otherwise, if everyone's just like you, then you might as well just be a one man band uh, and a one man show. But I think you've you've nailed it there by saying that you will take an individual who isn't necessarily going to tick all the boxes so long as you think that they've got the soft skills train train the rest of it um so look i, I guess with that in mind you've talked about how you're introducing others um, perhaps into the world of research um we always kick off here you know to go way back um brad how did you first get into the world of research because there's very few i mean adam is one that kind of sort it out, but um, very few of our guests, Adam, have been similar to yourself in that sense, have they? It's Brad's forum, uh, to be honest, but but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, many of the people that we we, we speak to regularly have kind of stumbled into clinical research um, without necessarily having that inner drive or motivation. My particular drive was just to be in and around medical information and around physicians because I wanted to be one and I 
sadly didn't get the grades to be that. So I tried to be as close as I could to it. But I'd love to hear your story as well, Brad. Yeah, and it just like you guys said, it's a story I hear all the time. I do a podcast, same question I ask, and it's 90% probably stumble in, you know, blindly. And my story is not, not any different. I uh, worked at a plasma center. I was a phlebotomist. Uh, it was, you know, fine job. I did want to go to medical school. Uh, you know, I did not have the, uh, did not have the discipline to ever reach that level, let's just say. Uh, at least at, at that time in my life. So uh, I was working along and then I had a, a colleague reach out or a friend reach out and uh, they worked at the local university. They worked in a neurology department uh, in clinical research and they were leaving and they said, Hey, you might want to take a look at this. I can put in a good word for you. And I said, sure. What the hell? Let's, let's check it out. I'm not really going anywhere here. Uh, I went in and interviewed. I still came out not having any clue at all what the job even was or what took place in a clinical trial it, it you know but i got the job uh for better or worse i got the job <laughs> you know and i started out as a research assistant kind of at the very very bottom of the chain it was a very small department uh i spent two years probably probably two years just thinking what the hell am i doing what is this there's nobody to really train me well there weren't a lot of good resources out there so you know, I stumbled along and eventually figured some things out uh, here and there. And I slowly uh, was able to help build up the research within the department. Uh, and at that point, I was sort of looking for other opportunities. Uh, I took off and uh, became a, a manager for a research institute that's uh, connected to a heart hospital here in Oklahoma. Uh, big institute. They do a lot of research. Uh, not too long after that, I was promoted to the executive director. So I was directing all the research. They had hundreds of studies going on. Um, and really, they were great experiences, but they both kind of showed me some of the shortcomings of the way that research is done at traditional institutions. Uh, so, you know, there's not a lot of uh, PI incentive uh, in, in some of these big institutions, especially a place where there's you know, surgeons and interventional cardiologists that can be in a cath lab all day, making a whole lot of more money uh, than, you know, some of these clinical trials. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I took all these things and decided that I really wanted to go out and be able to provide an opportunity for, especially private practice physicians who do have a little bit more incentive, I think, to be involved in these, in these trials uh, and actually pitched the idea to the hospital I worked at and said, Hey, why don't we use our name? We can go out into the community. Uh, we've got all the infrastructure and tools to do it. I don't think they really understood what I was pitching. So uh, I broke off on my own and actually started in a cardiology clinic uh, that was across the street from that hospital. So I, don't, I probably did make a lot of friends uh, <laughs> when, I, when I left. Uh, and from there, it's been a little, well, I guess we're creeping up on four years now and we're serving almost 70 physicians here in Oklahoma. Uh, we're across just about every therapeutic area you can think of. We're just now starting to get into oncology. Uh, that, that's sort of our new, uh, new space where I think there's a lot of interesting collaboration for, uh, you know, community oncology. Uh, so that's kind of where we are today. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pivots and a lot of, uh, kind of faking it till you make it, but, but here we are. So here we are so far. <laughs> 
Definitely. How did, I mean, how did it feel back then, um, Brad, when you decided that you were going to kind of, you pitched the idea, they didn't necessarily get it, and you were just like, okay, fine. Like, it sound, sounds like you perhaps just brushed it off and just went and did it, but surely that can't have just been a, a decision that you made lightly. What was going through your head at that time? How, you know, how did you feel? No, I mean, it, it was, I felt I was onto something enough to the point to where I was going to do it one way or the other. Uh, I, you know, I frankly wished I had done it much sooner, uh, but I went ahead and I, you know, in my off time, tried to start making some relationships outside the, the center. Uh, it still took a couple of years till I really got the confidence built up to, to break off and do it. So, mm. you know, I, I pulled my retirement and I was like, I got about a, you know, couple of years worth of, of money here, what I need to do. Uh, let's get this thing going. Didn't make a dime for the first, you know, six, eight, nine months, somewhere in there. And then uh, started landing some pretty, pretty good studies and was able to really ramp up fairly quickly. So, it, but, you know, I was, uh, <laughs> look, I, I grew up, uh, you know, playing in punk rock bands and uh, touring, <laughs> touring around. And uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you think. You know, this is a, this is this is a good idea. I, know I knew we were going to get there somewhere, Brad. <laughs> I, I mentioned before we joined the call that you you definitely got a musician in you. I, I, I had a feeling. <laughs> is that or is either a musician, Adam, or a late night FM DJ? Yeah, that that <laughs> baritone is just incredible. <laughs> yeah, so for me, it was almost more it was almost more validating to be hear them say no, or not validating, but motivating to hear them say, well, no, that's okay. We're just going to kind of stay in our lane. I was like, all right, and man. I, I don't know whether you, I don't know whether you find this, but this is something we talk about quite regularly. Is you know, clinical research is by its very nature surrounded by very conservative people who are not risk make uh, risk takers, and and are not really willing to, to, as you say, get out of their lane. And and I think, you know, James James is a case in point. I think myself as well. You know, I like to take risks. I like to challenge myself, get out of my comfort zone because that's where the growth happens. And it sounds like you're very much aligned with that as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's it's crippling you know in some ways the clinical research industry that people won't uh you know be a little bit more uh able to take on risk you know especially at the site levels because again yeah. i think that's uh you know it's a uh, most sites fairly don't run well they don't run like good businesses they don't run they just don't run well because they're afraid, COVID, they're afraid to it? take risks. <laughs> right, exactly. That was before COVID. And then suddenly you turn the whole thing upside down and suddenly you've got to come up with something. Some some means of getting patients recruited, some means of getting medications into the arms of patients who otherwise are restricted to, to be able to do those things. Well, that's just it. What we do is serious business, right? It's got big implications and i don't think we can afford to be you know so so risk averse i mean we've, we've got to be able to take those those leaps whatever they may be and obviously you know we we still live in a uh, a very well structured and regulated industry there's no question about that but yeah. i still think that leaves a lot of room for in innovation and again especially at a site level where you know it's a we have to be a little more creative right these are uh these cro's are they're billion dollar companies. These DCT companies are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in investments. And you see that, uh, 
what, 60% of sites don't have three months of operating capital on hand, uh, I believe, according to a, maybe it was a, a Socra uh, survey. So, you know, we, we have to be creative or we, or we won't exist anymore. Wow. You make some amazing points there, but I couldn't agree with you more. Um, go on, James, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, Brad, I guess I'm just touching on the point where you mentioned you had gone for kind of, you banked some money, you decided you were going to go for it. Um, similar to my own story, really, um, right down to the point of, yeah, six to nine months, didn't make a penny. <laughs> and I mean, not a penny. I was worried about paying the mortgage. You know, I was kind of like, am I going to have to go back and get a real job? As it may have been put to, you know, any of my friends that were thinking, what, what are you doing? Um, so look, just talk us through those times. How did you deal with that? And would you say there's any specific habit or personality trait that you have that allowed you to go through it? For me, I don't know whether I'm just stupid, pig-headed, whatever it was. I was just there, like failure was not an option. Um, so I'd end up working day and night. But you know, for you, was there sort of anything else, any habits or, or personality traits that got you through that time? I mean, frankly, for me, I sort of had to be the opposite of how I normally would be. I, I tend to be a very introverted, kind of keep to myself kind of guy. So but I, that's not an option, though, right? You can't just sort of sit around and wait for something good to happen. Uh, you got to go out there and uh, make shit happen. Frankly, you got to go out there and, and and do it. I mean, and that's that's what it took for me to I had the same ideas that like, this is not going to fail. I know enough to know that this can be done successfully. And the first thing, you know, is, look, I'm going to embarrass myself some along the way, go ahead and get used to that right now. Uh, go ahead and get used to looking dumb, or not being fully prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was the same thing. I mean, it was night and day until, you know, I was able to get landed what needed to be to, to be landed. Because again, it's a, you know, it is a failure is not an option. They say I have a backup plan. Yeah, you can have a backup plan. You can go get a job working for whoever. But, you know, for me, that, that wasn't an option. I wasn't going back to the, you know, I would certainly wasn't going back to academia. And I really didn't want to go back to any other sort of, you know, corporate structure. So, uh, you know, that's sort of a, a long rant of an answer. But uh, really, at that point, it just became pure. How hard can you hustle? You know, how many people can you talk to? How many contacts can you make? How many people can you ask for studies until you start landing the right ones? How many doctors can you talk to until you get enough on board? It's, it's, that's it. There's no secret to it. Also, you're, you're challenging all the time, aren't you? You're challenging the status quo. You're putting yourself out there. I've seen many of the pods that you're putting out there in the same way that, that James went down and started bashing down doors. You sounds like you're using all, all the tools at your disposal to do the same sorts of things. It's that kind of inner drive. It's that motivation. It's that no one else is going to make it happen for you, are they? You know, I, I similarly don't have any uh, angel sat over my shoulder, though I'd love to think that I did. You've got to make it happen, haven't you? You've got to make it happen. You know, we've got mouths to feed, roofs to put over our heads. And um, and actually, I think those that pivot and change and, and can adapt as quickly as you clearly have and are doing will succeed in this new world. And, and I think my next question would, li would likely be, and how has that been for you? Because I think that's probably where we're going with this, isn't it, James? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good point too, that you brought up that I, I didn't touch on was being 
dynamic and flexible, right? Because what I thought I was going to do back then versus what I'm doing now is a world apart. And it's been six different worlds in between then, right? So it's, it's a kind of a matter of, you know, sometimes you got to throw things against the wall and, and find what sticks, but not be afraid, not get too married to the idea or of any one idea, right? To be like, this is the thing, this is the one thing. Well, no, that's, that's not oftentimes, it's rarely the case, right? You're going to have to be able to, to uh, be adaptable and be flexible and sort of can't have it too much of an ego, right? Because you, otherwise you're going to get, you're going to get knocked out and that, that's not going to, that's not going to work for you. E egos don't work when it's just yourself reflecting back, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it's, a it's, it's, a, it's a fairly lousy conversation, actually. <laughs> Look, no, I, I just have to say, uh, Brad, that I'm, I'm impressed. You know, one of the things you touched on there, it was that typically you'd been quite introverted. I would say that I'm quite the opposite. Often I've, in my <laughs> previous life, I've been a bit of a show off, quite extroverted. So the fact that you've been able to jump in and do what you've did and kind of be prepared to suck at something in order to then master it um, is, a, is a massive credit to you. Um, so look, that probably brings us up to how's it now going? Because, you know, a, a few moments ago you mentioned the amount of sites that you're, you're dealing with, the amount of, you know, physicians that you've got on, on the books and just how many people you have reached out to. So give us a snapshot of how things look at, at present. Yeah, so I think we're sitting right around 50 active studies right now. Uh, and again, we're uh, working with 70 physicians here in Oklahoma. We're, we're now starting to look outside Oklahoma, uh, looking at picking up potentially some uh, uh, kind of scaling the model uh, in different Metro sort of staying in the Midwest middle of the country where I think there's still just a ridiculous amount of opportunity. Uh, I don't know that models like this have quite shifted in and look for better or worse, Oklahoma is not exactly the healthiest place. Uh, we tend to be, uh, have a lot of heart disease, have a lot of obesity, uh, have a lot of diabetes. So, uh, it's really a, a place that still needs a lot of, <laughs> a lot of help. Right. Mm -hmm. So, that's where we're at now. I think that the trick is, you know, even now this has been just a bootstrapped operation. Uh, it's all based off of revenue. So it's had to be a slow and strategic growth, but uh, the real hope is to sort of take this integrated model with sort of a, a hub and spoke as well and pick that up and be able to move that across uh, similar size metros as, as a place like Oklahoma City. Fair enough. I, I like that. I mean, if you see any of or a lot of my posts on, on LinkedIn, I'm always talking about doing the small things well and that, you know, small things done consistently add up to big things and the compound effect. And it sounds like you've kind of had to go down that route, but it's working for you. So just keep going with it. And that's that's the plan. right? So, so, so far, so good. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've considered going out and trying to raise, you know, raise capital and there's been a lot of missed opportunities, frankly, but I've also seen people even with all the money in the world fail because they've tried to grow too quickly without uh, really having their processes hammered down or, or even a true understanding of what this industry involves. This is such, it's difficult to walk in without experience and wrap your mind around what happens in the clinical trial industry, in, in my opinion. And that's not to be a gatekeeper because I think we need more good talent, but I think it's, uh, I've seen a lot, especially in the DCT conversations where people 
have these solutions and I'm like, look, man, I'm progressive and forward thinking and thinking outside of the box, but I don't know that you can do that. You that's, we're not quite ready for that yet. I think. And I, I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like a, you know, a cynic where I'm really not, but, uh, it's just such a unique and niche industry. I think that makes it difficult for, for these sorts of new, uh, technologies and concepts to catch on, you know, it's an interesting place. You, you make, you make such an interesting point there, Brad, because, um, as someone who's also learned, learned this industry from the inside out, there comes a point at which your expertise kind of grows with you, but then you can see these things. You can see the, you can see what's going to succeed. You think, you think, you think you can see what's going to succeed. And at the same time, as you, as you described, you know, there are technologists out there coming up with great ideas, but they've got to understand the industry that they're trying to support. And there have been a number of companies that I've come across and advised and had various conversations with who, who may be great at what they do, but actually don't understand the industry they're trying to support. Don't know the, the nuts and bolts of taking bloods, taking ECGs, triplicate ECGs, round the clock for eight weeks, for example, the amount of data that entails, summarizing it, getting it out into something that's going to make some sense to a regulator. You know, it's those nuts and bolts of pulling them together that I think you're talking to and describing that technologists perhaps don't get unless they have that insight or someone sat on their shoulder that can actually advise them, give them best practice and say, well, actually, you know, in principle, that might work. But actually, in practice, this is really what happens. And did you know this? And what about that? And have you thought about how perhaps you might want to overcome this particular challenge that will be your failure for route to market well, I, I, and that's I, I have that happen so regularly I, and, and as you were speaking i just needed to bounce that back off you yeah yeah and so it, it's encouraging i will say because i am seeing some companies who are starting to make more uh inroads with you know especially sites look yeah dct subject recruitment emr integration all these cool sexy things that that are out there right now that are you know raising a lot of money they're great but right now patients are enrolled at sites for the overwhelming majority that's just how it works right and i this is one place where again not i hate to sound like a gatekeeper but unless you've worked at a site and understand the lift that it takes to get these patients from point a to point b and then fingers crossed all the way through to point Z is ridiculously challenging. I mean, I still take phone calls at 11 o'clock at night with somebody's e-diary is not working. Right. And that's because they know and trust me and, you know, I, I can walk them through this. I think, so I think it's a more challenging endeavor than what they think. Now, who knows, they've got millions of dollars now. So they're probably a lot more likely to figure it out than, than they would have been otherwise, but man, it's a, it, it, it just feels like the wild west right now with all these guys, you know, competing for each other and knowing that a large majority of them aren't going to, they aren't going to make it, you know, but it's just interesting. It's an interesting time. Well, I'll say that. <laughs> the, the biggest challenge to clinical trials though is patient attrition, isn't it? It's the fact that the people don't come back or they might be motivated initially and then actually their situation or their circumstance changes and you lose them. And, that dropout rate is the biggest challenge, I would say, to, to anything that you're doing with sites, isn't it? So you've got to make it as easy as possible, as 
flexible as possible and also just give them the tools that make that, that retain that engagement whether they be you know handheld epros or, or or whatever it is give them a give them a regular phone call have a group of people who are just going to pick up the phone and sound you know have a chat like a friend because yeah, invariably there are, there are many people that are looking for that as much as they are to be enrolled in a clinical trial aren't they uh see i cannot tell you how many of my patients grandkids names i know and how many pets they have and you know all that stuff because you're right and again i feel like that's something that to a large degree has been sort of it's sort of frowned upon at a research site is like well they're not your friends you don't need they're this is clinical this is science but but how are you going again, to get them to come back you, you just can't i do agree it. they they have to want to come see you they have you've to want to, build, to come see you you've got to build something a rapport that communication that you spoke about but it has to be some kind of connection and if you do that well they'll come back time and time again and they might do other trials you know they'll, irrespective they'll, of they'll refer their friends. I mean, yes. these people who are sending their fam friends and family members in for other studies. I mean, it, it's a, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here. It's a stacking, uh, you know, it starts to stack, you know, those little investments that you make become yeah. exponential over time. And, uh, I think that again, that's sometimes lost on, well, we can send a, an iPad over to a clinic and have somebody call in and, or what, whatever the case may be. I think I'm afraid we're going to lose some of that. Uh, what makes recruitment and retention really successful. And again, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but that's, that's a, the inkling I get. It's been it's my experience. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, kind of that engagement and just doing the small stuff, uh, as I said, sort of a moment ago, that, often adds up to, to be the big thing, um, you know, when it when it really boils down to it. Um, but look, things must have changed over the past 18 months, um, Brad, certainly at a site level with people being able to go to site, etc. How has that impacted you as an individual, Hightower Clinical as a business, and I guess, you know, the, the patients, you know, what, what have been the biggest challenges you faced over the past 18 months? So it's tough because I mean, <laughs> the culture of where I live in the middle of the United States is for better or worse. There's not been as much of a change as you would hope for, so to speak, if that, if that makes sense. So to a very large degree, you know, a lot of the independent clinics, especially pretty much operated as normal. Now we certainly wow. had, uh, you know, patients who were uh, a lot less likely to come in and we, we probably lost a lot of opportunity there. But uh, honestly, we had, we were in the middle of a surgical study that uh, we just knocked out of the park during, you know, not a great part of the, the pandemic. And mm. that, that kind of helped keep us, you know, afloat throughout, but uh, obviously, you know, some sponsors suspended their trials or offered, uh, uh, you know, different avenues for, for some of the visits. And we certainly, uh, you know, took part in that where it was, where it made sense, but I have to say, and you know, although it benefited me as a company, it's a little disappointing that, you know, it, we really didn't see as much of a, you know, lockdown or sort of tightening down even, uh, here in Oklahoma. And I think that's just without getting, you know, political has a lot to do with the, the climate here. Uh, so take that for, for what it's worth. I, I may not have, uh, 
you know, suffered as much as some of the larger institutions. And again, whether that's a good or bad thing is, you know, up for debate, I guess. No problem. We certainly won't let, um, get into anything too political here. We like to keep it fairly <laughs> casual, don't we, Adam? We don't, we don't want to be going down that route. Certainly, certainly not with the US audience and the politics. Sometimes LinkedIn, you know, just plummets into a political debate and I'm just like, I need to get out. <laughs> no, but, I mean, um, what, what you describe is, is fascinating locally. It's, it's a local insight, which I don't think is reflected more uh, broadly Either, either nationally or globally, actually, by the sounds of it, you know, that's your, that's been your experience. It certainly hasn't been my experience. Really, it hasn't been. But it's fascinating. Yeah, that, that, that's fair, I would say. Yeah, that's fair. That, that's probably a uh, more unique uh, circumstance than, than what happened elsewhere. And then, you know, we did, we do have a contract with a hospital uh, group here, and we did have to shut, they were obviously a little more tight on shutting down elective procedures. We do a lot of GI, so we couldn't do yeah. any colonoscopies for a while. Um, you know, so, I mean, we really didn't have much to, that we could do about it. You know, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, there's no DCT solution for a colonoscopy <laughs> at this point. So I'm not sure that you'd want one, but, <laughs> you know, so we just kind of had to, had to take what we could get at that point and wait it out. And uh, luckily we had some other stuff that, uh, was still very active that allowed us to not feel too much of the the, the pain. But if, if anything, sorry, if anything, if anything, that may have actually created more opportunity because that scaling that you've spoken about is a possibility now because you were able to continue to do the majority of what you were able to do in that time, whereas many other companies in similar situations. I just have, have just retrenched and, and protected themselves, I would say. That's true. And we didn't do a single COVID trial. Uh, and, you know, I know that a lot of that was also an issue for other therapeutic areas is that you, you get your uh, research team sort of, you know, redirected towards COVID trials only yeah. uh, and, you know, puts kind of a grinding halt to even other active trials that you could be enrolling. So we really didn't uh, participate uh, in any COVID trials. So uh, I consider it a real sort of blessing we're able to make it through that patch, you know, and uh, hopefully, you know, the, the worst of, uh, you know, the patch there and uh, can continue to, to do, keep, keep scaling. So yeah, good point. Definitely. That's kind of exactly the line that I was going to go down there as to, look, it, it kind of has presented if anything, a little bit of an opportunity. Um, so I'm interested, Brad, to find out, you know, what's kind of next in store for yourself. I mean, you touched on the plans um, kind of a while ago, but what, what do you see as plans for Hightower Clinical, but also what other developments do you perhaps see for the industry as a whole over the next, as well, I guess we're, heading towards the holidays now aren't we chap so um yeah as we close out the year and, and head on into 2022 what are you foreseeing for for high power clinical and the rest of us yeah so i mean you know as a company i'm hoping to get into a couple other geographic areas and start to at least get a uh you know a little bit of a foothold to get a study or two going you know the hope is that uh my whole strategy is to sort of stay as diverse across therapeutic areas as I can, just because been in cardiology, cool. It's hot for a year. A bunch of stuff gets approved until the next, until the pipeline fills back up, you're just kind of sitting on your hands. So, uh, to be able to get in, 
start in a therapeutic area, but then expand out rapidly. So, you know, I'm hoping to get into maybe one or two more geographic areas. Uh, and as far as the industry goes, I mean, we're going to see more of the DCT, uh, I don't know, implementation, I guess. Uh, obviously, we're not going to stop hearing about the talk because you look and there's a panel every other day with 16 people on it. And, you know, it's, uh, that's, you know, it's probably good. We're still figuring stuff out and how it's all going to work, but, uh, I can certainly start to see some of these more savvy companies partnering with more people, especially at site levels to, to really start to get granular because I, I sit in on a lot of these talks and it's very high level. I don't hear a lot of specifics show me what you're talking about because i know what it takes to enroll a patient and get them through but do you because i can't tell sometimes by the conversation uh so i'm hoping that that continues to uh kind of be expounded upon a little bit because it's still it's still pretty nebulous but i think you know with the amount of money being thrown around it's, it's bound to it's bound to get figured out uh at least to some degree interesting I, I like that and I, you know anytime I've had guests on the show there's often stuff that I don't necessarily understand myself Brad so sometimes it is great to have someone just say you know or ask those questions if you're in some of those meetings to just sit there and go yeah okay that that sounds amazing but how's that going to happen I'd love to see that on some of these panel shows that I've tuned into to educate myself just so that it is you know <laughs> nailed down to actually the logistics of how how these things will happen well you know again it's it's becoming more prevalent and i've had conversations with some of these guys because I, I look again i do think that it is a an important part of the future there's no question about it i think these are going to be uh tools that help across all kinds of different different areas but i also think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors so sussing that out is important to me because I would love to be aligned with the people who figure it out. Because again, I think that's, that's, the, that's the way forward. But mm. I think right now it's having to sort of, uh, you know, go through a little bit of a needle in a haystack type situation, finding the, the ones who, who are going to end up being legit and who, who are not. There are, there are plenty of people who are making a lot of noise, as you say, on, on places like clubhouse and, and riding the co the coattails of the success of the investments within the industry right now, aren't there? You know, I, I, I absolutely, absolutely echo your thoughts around that because there have been, there was a period of time when I was on Clubhouse listening in a lot and, and you can just lose hours listening to the talk, but actually it is invariably a lot of talk and an action and doing something very different it's the so what it's the how do you do that stuff it's it's outside of conceptual it's the doing it's which is the point of of, of what exactly you're doing well it's the boots on the ground doesn't it and that's why i find it hard because again i my again just the way i am my first inclination is to call bullshit on on things right and be like no that's that's not right but again i i have to sort of peel that back because i think there's a lot of validity and maybe this is just where we are in the process right now. Right now we're just running up this hype train. People are, there's some fakers, there's some, some real deal and it'll eventually all sort itself out. So I think to some degree, it's just going to be a matter of waiting to see how things either consolidate or, uh, you know, the, the fakers sort of fall by the wayside, but you know, 
that's why it's so, such a fascinating time though. You know, I mean, that's what's so, it makes what we do so exciting because I do think big changes on the horizon, but it's not clear what that's going to be yet. So it's what keeps me, you know, doing what I do every day. Definitely. Well, it's interesting times, I think, for everyone involved in, in clinical research at the moment. You've given us some cracking insights there, Brad. Um, and look, before we wrap up the show, we always like to close off with a, a quick fire round for all of our guests. Um, so look, as I say, you've given us some insights already, but look, I'll kick us off with the first question of our quick fire round. And that is, what is the one piece of advice that you'd perhaps give to your younger self? Uh, just do the damn thing. Don't overthink it. You know, I think uh, so much of not just me, but a lot of people's uh, uh, problem is, you know, sort of the analysis paralysis that that goes into play. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't have a plan and that you, there's any, any whim you should chase. But I think that uh, I wish I just jumped in sooner. Uh, I mean, if I had to go back, that's what I would say. Give myself probably a nice little slap across the face and say, go man just go man <laughs> i like it i like it i mean jumping in sometimes too fast and not thinking and just doing it has got me in trouble many a time in life but i think it's also been a quality that i have that has allowed me to, to get on um sometimes so yeah i like that one adam over to you it's it's, it's a it's a great point of this so so many alignments it's incredible um our listeners always like to hear what what people what people are reading at the moment, and and I'd be curious to know, you know, what's on your bedside table. What are, what are you reading when you're not thinking all about clinical research? Yeah, so uh, and I know uh, just a recent uh, recommendation I've made, even maybe to James, was uh, uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits. I'm like uh, I struggle with structure and discipline to be perfectly honest which sometimes be you know maybe surprising people to hear so it's a, it's a great book for me to sort of be able to go back to and reframe uh some of the habits that, that i have uh and then you know aside from that i really love to read uh like the old stoics so like marcus aurelius and uh, epictetus uh something that i'm kind of always going back to uh, i think that's applies so broadly to to life and to business and to whatever it is that you do just a, a happy life i mean that's why we're here right so uh i'd recommend go go read the stoics even if uh you know it's not business related but i think it can help uh can help you in business as well that's terrific advice thank you it is indeed and yes brad you did recommend james clear atomic habits to me and i have since read it and i'm quite habitual myself already but when he talked about habit stacking, I was like, wow, this is just going to another level. What can I do next? I was just, you know, trying to create even more habits and structure. But no, fantastic uh, recommendations there. Um, on to our next question. And that is, what are the top three qualities that you value most when building a team? I mean, I think first, maybe for lack of a better word, is just dynamism, right? So being able to know when to take what approach, you know, and not, not necessarily having the same level at all times, being able to read the room, being able to, uh, you know, be flexible and sort of cater what you're doing to whoever your client or, you know, partner may be at, at that case. And being able to recognize that, I think, you know, a lot of people sort of have one speed uh, and I really appreciate people who can reframe and sort of, uh, 
change appropriately or not I don't say change appropriately, but frame appropriately to their, their audience, so to speak. So mm-hmm. that's something I really look for. Um, I mean, frankly, just, just being pleasant goes a long ways, doesn't it? I mean, I know that's a, that may be, uh, not necessarily a very sophisticated answer, but who do you want around you? You want people that are pleasant and people who are thoughtful. And, and, uh, I think that, that also goes a long way. Uh, emotional intelligence is a big deal, uh, which maybe kind of goes back to, you know, being able to be dynamic, um, and resourceful. I mean, that's more than three, but I think those are probably the big things is like, I don't need you to know everything, but just know how to figure it out. Right. That that's, mm. that's a big deal, especially in what we do where there's, it's not always a hundred percent clear, but can you figure it out? Well, if you can, then I probably got a place for you. That's what you want. That is what you want. Uh- so following on from that, and, and this isn't the next question, but but following on from that, the interesting thing is how do you identify those people in just a very short period of time when you've got a one-to-one? Because what I'm picking up from this discussion is that I think you have all of those things, by the way, Brad. I think you clearly have emotional intelligence. You're a good listener. You get shit done. And also, I think you're recognizing and and familiarizing with with traits that that we all share actually on this discussion don't we and and that's the point it doesn't take that long to figure people out i don't think either and one thing that i've learned over the last couple of years is really how this media works so much better than actually being in a physical room because actually there's no hiding place is there there really is no hiding place what you see is what you get now whether or not that's a 3d what you see is what you get it is absolutely that though isn't it you know, there is no hiding place. We are what we are. And um, I, I just I just wanted to make that point because I think I think you're picking up on all the all the right all the right signals. And and I I'm also pinging those signals, I think, in, in the virtual room as well. So that's great. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. So so outside of work, when you're not working and 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 um, thinking about future proofing your business and uh, expanding the opportunities. What do you do? What do you do in your downtime? What do you enjoy doing outside of work? What's sure, your I got I got two two small kids. I got an eight year old and a and a two year old. So I uh, do a lot of uh, a lot of soccer and a lot of uh, chasing the other one around, trying to keep him from killing himself. Basically, you know, little two year old boy. Uh, you know, I still love to play guitar, so I still got my old Les Paul out, and uh, you know, like to get down on that. Uh, and I like to read. I mean, I work in research. I just love to learn all the time. So, I mean, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time, this is a, may come off the wrong way, but I'm a big fan of Reddit. There's so many, uh, people sharing like their experiences. I think it's such an interesting way to learn something in a sort of a consolidated amount of time because you get, you know, first person, uh, experiences. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say that I'm in some ways, a, I call myself an existential del- dilettante, right? So I have just a ridiculous amount of interest that I get about 80% into. And then, you know, the other 20% requires too much effort to, to specialize further into. So, uh, that's kind of how I spend a lot of my time is just learning, uh, across all kinds of different, uh, modalities. There's a great, uh, Heinlein quote, uh, I, I can't recite the whole thing, but it's, uh, you know, essentially along the lines of, uh, specialization is for insects, you know, and that, uh, you know, a, a man should have a, a broad 
level of knowledge. And I, I very much kind of try to live that ideal, I guess. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, I, I guess to, to wrap up um, then, Brad, and I can perhaps see where this is going, you know, what is your number one golden rule for life and business? Oh, man, that's a heavy one, right? So, I, I mean, truthfully, and it's going to sound cheesy, but just have fun with it. You know, you can, I've, I've basically slept on a couch in a two bedroom apartment with five guys living in it, you know, in a band drove across the country in a freezing van and I was happy as hell. I loved it. Right. Uh, mm. and you know, now I have a, a nicer lifestyle, I, you know, wear suit jackets, you know, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I'm having fun with that too. So, I mean, it's not a matter of rich or poor or, you know, success or not. Just have, just have fun, have fun with life. We got one of them, you know, so do what you love as best you can try to have, try to find joy where you can find it. I mean, you know, not a great business, uh, piece of advice, but I mean, it's, you know, it's more than <laughs> life's more it, than I that. I think it is without even knowing Brad, I think it, I think it is. Um, and look, you, you know, thanks very much for wearing the suit. You've made us look sharp on the show. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure coming, um, having you on, um, and hearing all about, yeah, your story from sleeping on couches, driving across the country, your kids. Um, yeah, it's been a, a fantastic time having you on. Um, and look for anyone that wants to, to reach out to you. I know that I'm always seeing you active on, on LinkedIn. Um, is that the best place to reach you or how else should our listeners or audience reach out to you if needed? Yeah. LinkedIn's about the only social media platform I use. Uh, so yeah, either there or Brad at hightowerclinical.com. And uh, I'm pretty good about uh, responding to email, but yeah, LinkedIn's your best bet. Fantastic stuff. Well, look, thanks again for coming on the Huxley Morton podcast. We'll let you get on with your day over in Oklahoma. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, man.